This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech Onsite Hydrogen. It's official. The hydrogen economy is here. The global transition to clean energy is gathering momentum, and it's clear that hydrogen will play a critical role. Biotech offers modular, scalable, and rapidly deployable hydrogen production systems through sales, rentals, leases, and gas as a service to customers worldwide. If you're interested to learn more, visit biotech.us to find out how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low, or zero-carbon hydrogen today. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Senior Associate in Breakthrough Technologies at the Rocky Mountain Institute, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who's calling in from London. On today's episode of Everything About Hydrogen, we will be speaking with Sam French, Business Development Director at Johnson Matthey. JM is a leading global manufacturer and supplier for the chemicals industry and has a long history within the hydrogen sector from gray to green production technologies. Sam is here today to tell us about JM's view of the hydrogen economy and how they expect to see it grow and evolve in the coming years. Before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at about hydrogen. Last but certainly not least, the Hydrogen Media team is excited to announce that we are launching a new series of collaborative podcast episodes we are calling EAH Deep Dive. Deep Dive episodes are created and produced in collaboration with leaders in the hydrogen industry and are specifically focused on some of the most exciting innovations and announcements in the sector today. Our first episode of Deep Dive is being developed with the team from Anapter and will air at the end of this month. We'll be providing more information in the coming weeks and cannot wait to get the Deep Dive series live for our listeners, so stay tuned. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, gentlemen, it feels like it has been far too long. I'm not actually sure how long it's been since we last talked. Patrick, how are you doing? Great. Absolutely great. All right. <laughs> the least convincing, convincing <laughs> response ever. <laughs> I'm, do, I'm doing okay, Andrew. What, what has dramatically changed in your world in the last few weeks? Well, why, why, why are you so busy that you haven't had time to talk to us? Is it all the private jet yeah, lifestyle yeah, yeah. that you now live as a senior exec, man? You know, I have never flown on a private jet before, uh, so I'm going. You know, I feel like it's uh, something everybody should do once in their life. So uh, it's you very know, democratic I'm, of you. You know, I feel like there's a there's a sort of West Coast charity there. You know, the uh, give every child a <laughs> private jet flight charity. You know, maybe get Val and uh, Paul Aramenko so you can make it a hydrogen private jet flight, and then you, you're there, right? That, well, I thought, yeah, I was going to, I was going to make it a little bit more, yeah, I was going to make it a little bit more elaborate announcement, but I guess you guys jumped, uh, jumped the gun. Uh, Chris, how are you doing? You look like you're enjoying yourself over in London. Did you redecorate? It looks like a new, you got a new scenery. Uh, no, it's probably just a different part of the house. You know, you're running out of places to film from. Um, no, look, uh, it's, 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 I think you, everyone... Did you catch that, Patrick? The house is so large that he has to film from a... He's in the boudoir. 
in the boot. Well, no, this is actually the the very boring <laughs> sitting room, sadly, with the horrendous rented curtains. Anyway, um, I don't think I know what a boudoir is. Patrick's giving me a look like I said something inappropriate. <laughs> your, your French girlfriends can be very disappointed. Um, no, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I, I mean, I think everyone in the UK, to be honest, is going completely insane, as I think a lot of people have with lockdown, right? I mean, we've had one of the longest lockdowns now for a while. So I think in that sense, it's kind of starting to... It feels a little bit like animals coming out of hibernation, right? Life is returning. And in theory, I think it's meant to be end of June. Everyone in the UK is meant to be off all COVID restrictions. So every COVID restriction in the UK is theoretically off. So no rules on how many people can gather, uh, no rules on face masks. They're going to theoretically start a lot of the sporting events. They're hoping to get Wimbledon back up. And that's actually, I think he's going to be really profound, right? I mean, everything about hydrogen, we usually talk about hydrogen, but actually hydrogen's energy. And the thing that is interesting about energy was how different COVID has been and how much has changed our behavior. And I do think, you know, this summer and for, for the UK, and I think for many countries, maybe even the US as well, is going to be the first time we get a sense of what everyone going back to normality looks like, you know, stripping aside the kind of two, three months where basically everyone gets blindingly drunk and does all sorts of stupid things for several months to remind themselves why they spent months locked indoors. I do think there will be actually kind of an interesting split where there are still people who are nervous, people who still aren't comfortable, people who are kind of nursing, you know, what's been difficult couple of months. Um, but And also for a chance for everyone to see what the economy actually looks like. Because I don't think anyone knows what on earth any of the economies look like at the moment in any kind of Western country because they've been on life support for 18 months, right? I think it's going to be fascinating to see. I don't know in the States if it's better. I mean, I get the impression from Biden over on this side of the pond, everyone gets the impression that the States vaccine stuff has suddenly gone from, you know, shocking to suddenly being quite impressive. I don't know if that kind of is giving everyone plus the $2 trillion stimulus loads of excitement about the US and about energy and hygiene or if, you know, if there's a different story there. My anecdotal experience with the uh, vaccine rollout has been that it's gone from shockingly bad to shockingly mediocre. I don't know if others feel differently, but DC, well, DC is not doing that great. Patrick, how many back, how many vaccination appointments have you had? Several. No, I, none. But, but like, this is going back for extra. I'm, I'm struggling to understand the definition of shockingly mediocre. Well, my father always described his political views as fanatically moderate. Is it, is it shockingly mediocre like a Heineken? It's supposed to be premium, <laughs> yeah, but it actually ends exactly, up just tasting like a pretty inoffensive, an, bland beer. That is an excellent, excellent. And now I get shot uh, by the Heineken listeners, but well, I mean, we certainly can cross them off the list. We were we were pretty far into negotiations with them as a sponsor, Chris, but I guess they're gone now. They're gone. Yeah. Oh well. Oh well. So, uh, Andrew, who have we got to talk to? It's a good question, Chris. Who are we talking to? I think it was someone from Johnson Matthew, if I'm not mistaken. Sam French. It was. I believe indeed. you know him. I do. So uh, Sam has played a huge role in uh, encouraging people to think about hydrogen and the options that hydrogen presents for the UK's net zero decarbonisation story. He's a very active member of the UK Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association and, and actually a number of other uh, organisations within the UK. Johnson Math itself is a really interesting business. So um, I'm sure Sam will go through it in more detail. But I mean, the way I always think of them is kind of a um, electrochemistry company, but with kind of hidden gems in some ways, right? So um, they're not well known for their batteries. They're well known for their fuel cells and for technology that they use that provides a range of other solutions, including electrolysis and things. But actually, they've also got these other weird and wonderful bits of technology that um, every so often you hear about, one of which I'm sure will get picked up on the discussion, which is around uh, autothermal reforming. 
So, so kind of an interesting business. Um, obviously international, but um, significant presence in the UK and uh, and obviously listed as well in the UK. So it'd be exciting to kind of get them to talk a little bit about um, what they're doing and, and how they're getting involved. They sit across a few different layers of the value chain in the hydrogen space, which is also quite unusual. Um, in some ways, Johnson Matthews more of almost a component supplier to the the names and faces that people perhaps know best. You know, so if a consumer might know who Ballard are or who ITM are or Nell or, or someone like that or or know who an Everfuel was or dare I say even a Proteum, it, it's, it's maybe not so clear for average consumers. You dare. Johnson you dare. I do dare. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily for the average consumer that they would know who Johnson Matthew is, but Johnson Matthew is an integral part of a lot of the kit that we're talking about. So in that sense, it's really interesting. A nice change from our normal profile. Yeah, no, I think of Johnson Matthew being one of those companies, uh, I think Patrick and I have discussed this previously, one of those companies, not a household name, but when you look into uh, the industrial sectors, you find out that they're everywhere. <laughs> so they're pretty, pretty massive, massive group. All right, guys. Well, uh, with that lovely introduction, why don't we see if we can get Sam on the line? Okay, so Sam, if you would tell our listeners a little bit about uh, who Johnson Matthew are and uh, and where you guys fit into the hydrogen world. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, so Johnson Matthew, a really interesting company, just over two hundred years old now. Um, UK-based company, about fifteen thousand people globally in the FTSE one hundred. Key uh, element of Johnson Matthew is, is it's all around sustainable technologies and um, creating products mainly for business-to-business uh, -business transactions. So we're really focused on the key technically challenging elements within other people's products, often uh, focusing on the core capabilities of, around chemistry. Um, and that was one of the, the things that flows through the majority of the, the products and, uh, that we manufacture. In terms of hydrogen, Johnson Matthews had a very uh, interesting experiences in the hydrogen space, going all the way back to the 1840s, where Johnson Matthews provided the initial platinum that was used by Sir William Grove in um, when he was designing the very first fuel cells, uh, inventing the very first fuel cells. So it's a it's a long history working across both uh, production of hydrogen uh, as, as well as uh, making key components for fuel cells. One important thing is that we have a really core capability in syngas technologies. Maybe that sounds a bit uh, outside the realms of hydrogen, but it's really uh, one of our key competencies. Syngas, for a quick chemistry lesson, syngas is essentially a mixture of CO, CO2, and hydrogen. And that can be generated in a number of ways, um, either through steam methane reforming of things like natural gas or gasification of materials, feedstocks such as biomass or, or waste. And then what we really are experts at is taking that syngas, either generating the syngas or taking it and altering the ratio to make different products. So that could be into methanol or ammonia, or as we're going to focus on today in hydrogen. So Sam, just, just following on quickly from that, you know, and that, you know, the long history in, in the, you know, the, the sustainable uh, kind of chemical space. And, and obviously you've done an awful lot of work 
kind of related to the chemical sector and the ONG space in general. But, you know, specifically taking something like uh, SMR and, and, you know, perhaps even the CCS aspect of that, how, how, how are you engaging that particular kind of uh, fossil-based strand and, and, and how are you looking to reduce emissions in it? Yeah, okay. Well, I, you know, that's a really good question. I think we should say that the chemical industry uh, has always been driven by improving efficiency. In the past, a lot of that drive for improved efficiency would be on you know, reducing costs and maximizing revenues. You know, so what Johnson Matthew would, would be doing is offering a blueprint or a process technology to our customers. We don't build plants and we don't operate them, but we provide what's called a flow sheet. So all of the different unit operations that will convert a feedstock through to a product. One of the core elements and core competencies is the steam methane reforming block where we've designed um, the largest steam methane reformer in the world, for example, which is actually on a methanol plant. Always there's been a drive to improve efficiency. Um, And with that drive to improve efficiency, often you would then end up with a reduction in um, CO2 emissions as well. Because generally what you're trying to do is use less feedstock to make the same amount of product or, or more product. So really, that's where some of our uh, interesting you know, real heritage comes from and our background in, as I've said, these syngas, convers- syngas generation and syngas conversion technologies. So what we're doing in the blue hydrogen space is we developed a number of years ago some specific technology for methanol, which was all about improving efficiency, driving imp- greater efficiency in the overall process. We can leverage that to make blue hydrogen. We've commercialized that technology, taken it through all of the development and deployed it at scale. Now we can see that some of those key unit operations that we developed really suit blue hydrogen. And I suppose the key there, why we think this new technology, which is based around a gas heated reformer coupled with an autothermal reformer, is that it's a, an improvement over steam methane reformer when we want to capture as much CO2 as possible to send for carbon capture and storage. The flow sheets that we're looking at, um, and I have to emphasize there are multiple steps through these flow sheets, and it's how they all integrate together that really drives the efficiency. The key element we, we've focused on is making sure that the CO2 is as easily easy to capture as possible. And one way to do that is to rather than drive the reaction using by burning natural gas, as you do in a steam methane reformer, in an autothermal reformer, you introduce oxygen to drive the reaction and you introduce it into the process stream. So that means at the end of your flow sheet, all of your CO2 is easily captured using today's technology, makes it a lot more efficient, cost-effective, And then by coupling our gas-heated reformer with the autothermal reformer, we can generate more hydrogen per every unit of natural gas that goes in at the front end. And if we can reduce the amount of natural gas we use, we can also therefore reduce the amount of CO2 that has to go for storage. So really, we're involved in a number of projects in the UK, the two that we can talk about because they were sponsored by UK government. Um, are high net and acorn 
within those projects we'll be looking to capture something like 98% of the total CO2 produced in production of the hydrogen. So just a quick follow on because because that's quite interesting and be, uh, I suppose you know possibly for for folks listening the benefit you know one of the the, the challenges with conventional um, SMR approach for production is the the two different qualities of the the CO2 streams that you get at the initial combustion and generation of steam and then the the back end post the water shift so uh, I suppose this is a this is a little bit of an innovation if you can get to a consistent stream of CO2 and I suppose the immediate question that jumps to mind is what is the um, kind of scaling capacity of this or, or, or you know, how, how are these systems kind of designed a little bit? Yeah, well, you, you described it really nicely, actually, that, that that's exactly what we've tried to do. We've looked for a, a flow sheet that will avoid any of those post-combustion CO2 streams that are then hard to capture, meaning all of the CO2 is in that process stream. And in terms of scale, this technology will scale as well, if not better, than a steam methane reformer. So a project like uh, Hynets at 350 megawatts in phase one, we're already looking at designs that will double that. And then, you know, the, 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 there are discussions about moving up to over a gigawatt per installation. Yeah, and Sam, shifting gears a, a little bit, uh, you know, as you've mentioned, Johnson Matthey has uh, quite a uh, quite a history and is a quite a large organization. Um, you know, shifting gears to another part of the hydrogen sector, you know, what uh, products and technologies does Johnson Matthey provide for the uh, for the fuel cell and electrolysis market? Yeah, well, uh, you know, that thanks again. It's a uh, it, really important point that um, Johnson Matthey is very clear that um, we're going to need a lot of both blue and green hydrogen. This isn't about one or the other. In fact, they um, have a lot of synergies between blue and green hydrogen. Um, and ultimately, we see got green hydrogen is the way forward, but we can generate scale and adoption by using blue hydrogen uh, as quickly as possible. Johnson Matthey, uh, after a lot of work last year, launched a business unit focused on green hydrogen. So we are very clear that it, it's both. We, we need a lot of both uh, if we're going to achieve some of the targets, such as you know, net zero as described in the UK and EU and other countries. So specifically, if we focus on um, green hydrogen and fuel cells, um, for over 20 years now, we've, Johnson Matthews has been investing heavily in, in fuel cells. What we, again, focused on is where our capabilities are strongest, matching onto our competencies in, in catalysis, chemistries, precious metals, and then manufacturing those at scale. So where we're focused is uh, on PEM fuel cells uh, and catalyst-coated membranes and membrane electrode assemblies. So you can think of this as a, you take the membrane when we can manufacture our own membranes and then coating an ink containing uh, the, the precious metal catalysts for a fuel cell. It's platinum on both sides of the membrane, the cathode and anode. And then for green hydrogen, we're also at the moment focused on PEM electrolysis, but also exploring other technologies. And again, you're looking at coating that ink containing your catalyst, platinum on the cathode, and, and a rhodium 
catalyst onto the anode. We're very lucky within the green hydrogen business in that we've got all of this expertise that's been built up in the fuel cell business where we have a large manufacturing uh, asset based in Swindon that can make tens of thousands of meters squared of these components every year. Uh, and equally the expansion that's recently happened there out in, out in China to, to service what's, what's you know, a really growing market there. So the, the key competencies there are again about how the, there we're looking at the sort of a, a roll-to-roll, reel-to-reel type manufacturing to really drive down cost per component by increasing the scale of manufacturing that we can perform. So Sam, I think a, a natural kind of follow-on and, and probably the, uh, the, the kind of, uh, well, it's a lot more than a hundred million dollar question, but, but nonetheless, you know, what, what is the, you know, emerging view of, of the, the hydrogen market maybe in the next 10 or 15 years? And I suppose linked to that, how do you kind of foresee that kind of blue hydrogen technology and electrolyzer green hydrogen technology kind of uh, rollout looking? Oh, yeah, as you say, um, it's a great a little question. Bit of a one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pressure. So uh, I think um, different jurisdictions are going down different routes. So one thing, Johnson Matthews, uh, board member of the Hydrogen Council, part of the reason for engaging there is for us to be able to, to view what's happening in different regions around the world. We're seeing different focus from different governments. Uh, closer to home in the UK, uh, I think we're seeing a twin track approach of blue and green hydrogen. We're seeing a lot of focus on industrial processes, so high temperature industrial processes, as an area where there are really not many other options. A little bit more uh, conversation about the role of hydrogen in domestic heating. I don't think that's quite nailed down yet, but there's a lot of work that's going on, great projects in the UK, things like uh, High Deploy H21, H100, which is starting to build the you know, this use and safety cases for those. And we also see now a real opportunity for hydrogen in uh, the transport sector, not for you know, small urban vehicles, but for, for the taxi fleets, for buses, trains, heavy-duty vehicles. And we're seeing some of that globally. So, you know, the uptake of, of in transport as well as a, a focus for hydrogen in, in industries such as um, cement and steel. Saying that, other jurisdictions such as, you know, Germany has been very focused on green hydrogen. I think some of that's due to wanting to stimulate a manufacturing base, which is very understandable. Also, the lack of uh, easy access to resources for carbon capture and storage. However, when you do read the German strategy, while they want to invest heavily in green hydrogen production locally, they do see that imports of uh, low-carbon hydrogen will be important for them to meet their targets as well. So, you know, you guys will be as aware as, aware as, as I am of the, you know, the large numbers of strategies and the, the, the large uh, figures that have been put in to support funding those. I think we're still not yet seeing all of the detail behind that and the mechanisms that are going to make it happen. For example, 
you know, while we're waiting for the hydrogen strategy in the UK, I think key will be the business models that come out later this year, which really will drive the initial large-scale deployments, both of blue hydrogen and green hydrogen, and also support the demand uh, demand side as well, which is always key. I think there is always that complexity for hydrogen of how we map or match production and demand, building the infrastructure required as well as having the end users come in. My view is that, you know, this is the decade for um, getting these first large-scale deployments happening uh, and allow us really to to map out a large-scale deployment through the early 2030s. And, and Sam, how does uh, how does JM uh, excuse me Johnson Matthey uh, plan to address concerns about scaling up capability within the supply chain? You know, in order to avoid constraints in the event of mass adoption. So yeah, we're happy with JM. It's not a problem. Um, I think <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't a, sure if that was just an internal lingo, Sam, or if I was allowed to use that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're allowed to. Drink. We're happy with that. Um, okay. I think it's a really interesting question. So, you know, we're also, Johnson Matthews also involved in developing state-of-the-art battery materials, um, as well as, as fuel cells, green hydrogen. In a way, in this hydrogen space, some of the, the, the manufacturing facilities are much more modular, particularly that's what we find for green hydrogen and fuel cells. You're putting down modules that are building these key components. And so in actually in terms of an investment risk, it's much more manageable than in some other areas. So yes, it's going to be a challenge um, to maintain the, the level of supply required, but it's not something that, that we see as will get away from us by any means. You know, we have, expansion uh, plans, as I mentioned already, uh, in progress uh, out in China. Um, also, I suppose Johnson Matthews always been very used to putting down facilities close to demand centers. So one of the, our current large markets is making catalytic converters for, for cars. Yeah, we, we, we understand that that market's um, you know, probably heading towards or reached its peak. But what we have done there is we've built factories in all of, on all of the co continents of the world near enough, uh, other than right down south, but close to where there are factories making a lot of cars. So we, we, I think we would see or anticipate a similar kind of pattern where we're likely to have factories making key components in, in the, the key regions that are adopting and supporting the supply chain of, for example, fuel cell vehicles or electrolyzers? So I think, I think one particularly kind of like, I think interesting, but a strand that, that kind of you mentioned as well, right? We've, we've heard an awful lot about the, the pathways and roadmaps that have been rolled out. Obviously, there's been an awful lot of noise in the, in the space in general around investment, but I just, I just wondered, given the, uh, Kind of the track record that that you've described about putting down facilities and actually getting into market. <clears throat> what do we really need to see in the next uh, little while to to really see the these uh, these pathways or roadmaps actually live up to the live up to the hype? 
Another another softball easy question for you, sorry. From Patrick Malloy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, sorry, I sorry. Should, I should have talked for longer on the other questions. I can <laughs> see that now. <laughs> no, um, there are different signals that you're getting. So you know, UK having hydrogen as number two in the ten point plan recently is very good. Now, will we start seeing the commitment behind that to deploy projects at scale? I think that's the key. We're beyond the time now for um, demonstration pilot projects. We need to see fleets of buses, you know, out of the 4,000 low carbon um, buses in the UK as an example that have been talked about. You know, a good percentage of those should be hydrogen buses. That will then generate the demand. We'll have the infrastructure come in for refueling and we'll, we'll see the up tick in supply. A lot of questions around the cost of things like green hydrogen. One of the biggest elements that will drive down that cost is scaling up manufacturing. In blue hydrogen, you know, we can deploy projects today with technologies that are proven at scale within, you know, we could be building projects in the next year or so. You know, we, we need to get projects to financial investment decision. That's the kind of key tipping point and once once we're past that we'll be proving how this blue hydrogen can be used we'll be maximizing the utilization of the carbon capture storage facilities because hydrogen will anchor some of those projects and we'll be able to have primary off takers that will be key to getting those projects away as i've mentioned potentially things like uh, high temperature heating process in industry But that will also give the hydrogen that can then spill over some of it into other sectors. So we can really demonstrate heating, 100% heating in a a village, then a town. We can show that uh, modern gas turbines run on blends of hydrogen today, building to 100% hydrogen in the future. And it will then start de-risking everything. It will de-risk all further investments. So for me, it's the next few years getting some critical large projects both blue and green production through FID into construction that will really produce the volumes of hydrogen that can really showcase the benefit of it in some of these really hard to abate sectors where we know we need hydrogen. Once we have that, the potential to be using it in large passenger vehicles because people want to do lots of miles and they want quick refueling time, will follow. So we need those large projects. We need them to come forward and get over the line and get their financial investment decision and start being built. And Sam, I uh, appreciate that we uh, you are probably running short on time. And I just wanted to, you may have answered our, our sort of last, uh, our last question right there at the end, but just wanted to get your thoughts quickly on uh, where where you guys where JM sees the most uh, you know near term potential for for hydrogen in an end use ap- application? Uh, I mean, you you pointed to uh, to uh, heavy and he- heavy transport. Is that where you guys see the uh, you know the closest uh, near term best potential application for hydrogen, or uh, are you guys looking at other spots, uh, other sectors as well in the near and mid term? I think you've got 
to have a bit of a global view on that. Um, I think, you know, we, we're seeing real uptick in China and things like buses. Um, so at that heavy end of the transport sector, we're not, to be honest, seeing such a pull in the UK. Some of that can be down to the hydrogen refueling infrastructure that's not as well deployed at the moment in the UK. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think that's wrong. And I think that's somewhere we're a bit behind. From a you know UK perspective, the industrial strategy, clean growth has highlighted industry as being an area of focus initially. So I think it is interesting that we're seeing different countries sort of adopting slightly different paths in where they're focusing their uh, initial requirements. You know, one area that you, you could start seeing is how you can bring in more low carbon hydrogen into chemical processes, something again that's very key and core to JM's capabilities. Um, how to, you know, how to decarbonize existing processes that maybe today use gray hydrogen can be a starting point. Um, although sometimes it's difficult to kind of remove existing uh, infrastructure and put new in. Other countries, I think, are looking at ways of blending hydrogen more into their gas networks. So we're seeing different routes. South Korea is adopting, uh, you know, they've got a sort of state policy of uh, purchasing vehicles using hydrogen. That's again stimulating that. But certainly, hydrogen, the benefits of hydrogen fit with these hard to abate sectors where other technologies. I suppose, mainly focused around electrification are really going to struggle. I think, Sam, uh, couldn't agree with you more on that last, uh, on that last point. And uh, I think we're going to wrap it there. So uh, really, really appreciate you making the time. No problem at all. Thanks for the opportunity. This episode is brought to you by Biotech Onsite Hydrogen. We all know the transportation sector is facing increased pressure to transition to zero emission solutions. And uh, to borrow a phrase from our dear friend Patrick Malloy, this is the thing. Hydrogen provides a clear pathway to decarbonization. Biotech offers its customers turnkey solutions for hydrogen supply that enable vehicle manufacturers, transit agencies, fleet operators, and logistics organizations worldwide to adapt to climate regulations and produce hydrogen for fuel cell electric vehicles at prices that compete directly with diesel. To learn more about how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low- or zero-carbon hydrogen, visit biotech.us today. All right. Well... It's good to have Sam on the show. Always nice to talk to him. Patrick, I'm going to start with you. Big picture, big takeaways. What did you think? So I think it's it's one of those interesting ones where you've got a breadth of kind of uh, engagements. And, and Jonathan Maffey, obviously a very prominent kind of actor in the space, uh, you know, as we've noted, I think in the intro as well, right? Like we've talked about everything from electrolysis to to the various forms of fossil-based generation, particularly the SMR and ATR. I think what's, what's really quite interesting, you know, from a, a little bit of a, a kind of technology nerd out position is that here we are talking to um, talking to a, a company that has been, you know, so involved in the energy space for a very, very long period of time and has 
in this particular space, multiple streams of innovation in the technology streams that they're focused on. So obviously the one that we talked about quite a bit, the kind of combination autothermal uh, reformer plus SMR, steam methane reformer uh, approach to, to uh, improve the, the capture rates for, for that, that natural gas uh, reforming uh, play. Very interesting, very innovative. Don't think I've heard of that one before. But in the same breath, you know, obviously talking about the growth of the market, the transitions in the market and the deployments that are required to scale the market. So very broadly interesting, very broadly a, a kind of a spectrum wide uh, kind of overview. And that's been I think that's that's the real insight, uh, you know, folks need to take away. We are not in a stagnant space. Uh, innovation is happening all around us in it. What about you, Andrew? What 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 jumped to mind from where I sit? There seems to be a lot of debate, and I think Chris is going to have some strong opinions here, and maybe even we'll get a uh, picture of how Chris's views on this topic have evolved over time. But, you know, Johnson Matthey obviously sits, uh, has a role in some pretty large uh, blue hydrogen projects right there, carbon capture technology. And I think there's still, I still, I go back and forth, I'll be honest with you, about where blue hydrogen projects are going to sit in that in the evolution of the of the hydrogen markets right globally and so uh, you know one day I feel <laughs> I feel like it's an integral part and then the next day I feel like yeah well, maybe we could skip over it I don't know so I mean talking to Sam and getting a feel for how Johnson Matthews sees it as an integral part of the transition I mean I think that's that's helpful for clarifying my thoughts around it I don't know if it helped clarify anybody else's thoughts around it but I know, uh, I know Chris had some pretty, uh, pretty strong views about uh, blue hydrogen technologies previously. I don't know how that's evolved recently. Uh, look, I mean, I, I think in some... Or, or you don't have to answer that exact question. No, that's Chris, fine. But... I mean, look, I, I, think, um, I think that there is a role in, for carbon capture technologies in decarbonization of uh, the global economy. Unquestionably, there will be applications in countries where that is necessary. I'm also fairly certain that um, in a lot of developing countries, they will need carbon capture systems because that is just going to be the way that that will work. And I'm also cognizant that if these technologies aren't commercialized in developed countries, it is going to be much harder to get developing countries to do them. Because if you're trying to get investors to take you know, market risk and uh, credit risk and technology risk, a lot of these things just won't get built. And I think, Andrew, that's why in some senses I share your sort of one day, one view, one day, the other view, right? Because if I, you know, almost in a similar vein to the conversation with Tim Year at Powerhouse, I can sit there and go, blue hydrogen and carbon capture needs to work because developing countries will never get to net zero. And without that, we will never decarbonize the economy and meet Paris. So they need to happen. The, the challenge then is, I kind of recognize it probably means they have to happen in a developed country first. But actually, if I kind of looked at a developed country in isolation, a lot of the time they don't make much sense. Right. So I keep looking at the UK and going, do you really need to do large scale carbon capture? I mean, most of the UK's natural gas really at this point is going to be coming from LNG and pipeline. Um, you know, and so actually it's not a particularly it's not a particularly good model. And, and if you're going to use carbon capture or using more natural gas than you would have done before, it's still not 100 percent capture at combustion. Plus, you've obviously got emissions upstream. So in reality, it's not net zero. And you're just basically passing offsets onto somewhere else in the system. I'm still not comfortable. They've got around the risk, which someone in Norway flagged to me the other day around um, CO2 leakage. This is something that is absolutely terrifying, but people just don't talk about is 
if you did have a several million ton leak of CO2 in the North Sea, CO2 is heavier than water, lighter than air, and you have seven-hour warning on the east coast of the UK and, and a lot of the tidal areas in Europe before you basically get a massive CO2 crowd, people would suffocate, right? It's, it's a genuine, non-trivial safety issue. Now, I'm not saying that's highly likely. I'm not trying to say that that means you shouldn't do any blue hydrogen projects. I'm just trying to say it's not as though these things are completely safe, complete slam dunk, you know, commercially. That, that There are all sorts of issues with it. And then the question I have as well is actually a more corporate strategic one, which is that Johnson Matthey uh, is in some senses trying to sit on both sides of the fence, right? It's trying to sit on the green technology side with batteries, fuel cells, electrolysis, and then also trying to sit on the supporting oil and gas side. And while in some senses I understand that because it gives you flexibility to kind of follow the market, I actually wonder if that makes the messaging harder for investors, because instead of it just being a pure green energy, clean technology play, you're also seen as being a key, you know, one of your flagship projects is a effectively an oil and gas industry preferred solution, which is blue hydrogen. And does that actually make your messaging harder to investors if you're trying to play the good cop as a green energy enabler, but also supporting the oil and gas sector? I, I think that's actually a very difficult line to balance, um, especially for a listed company as opposed to a privately held company. So. It's kind of depend on your investor, right? I mean, obviously a public company is a, little, <laughs> a listed company is a little different, but you know, you got to know your audience. So Patrick, you look like you had something you wanted to add there. No, it's, that's, those are all very, very valid and kind of central points, right? Um, you know, I, I suppose one of the interesting pieces is in, in the last week or so here in the U S we've seen the, um, the movement forward of a carbon dioxide transportation and infrastructure storage and infrastructure bill, uh, which will likely accelerate some deployment of, of CCS technology, building on, you know, the 45Q efforts in the last few years. There, there's there's deployment and use and there's prioritization. I think I think one of the other pieces that we want to think about is, you know, Chris rightly focused and flagged, you know, CO2 leakage in pipelines. The other the other challenge we have is in in even in methane pipeline infrastructure leakage, the relative emissions factor to to compared to the the loss ratio in some of the pipelines, we get very quickly to worse than coal in some places, and that's a challenge, right? But you know, at the end of the day, we're accelerating rather aggressively towards a a dystopian kind of you know three degree scenario where you know and if it gets past that we're in a lot a lot of trouble so we need kind of a lot of solutions and we need a lot of solutions fast when deployment is going to going to be critical so you know the investor point alongside that that chris made is is very central right like like what do we need to do and how fast do we need to do it and how do we mobilize that capital and scale at the same time it's very very challenging Patrick, if I, I'm going to jump in and uh, ask you to go back a second and perhaps explain for our, uh, our well, you know, we have a global audience, the listeners around the world. Uh, you mentioned 45Q. Could you uh, give a little bit of background on, you know, on what 45Q is? 45Q is a, a tax credit bill that passed through the Senate and it provides a value uh, over a period of time. I think it might be around 10 years for co2 capture in in various kind of forms and shapes so it provides a 
effectively allows you to kind of attach value or recognize value attached to the to the the, the tonnage or the, the kilogram of co2 um, there are people who can better explain how 45q operates and perhaps we should get some of those on the line to have a chat but <laughs> so for someone who, so i'd never heard of 45q so 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 to put it simply is it is it almost an equivalent proxy for a country that can't do a carbon tax to effectively make it a carbon tax credit correct but, but yeah in the simplest of terms, yes, it's part of the tax code. It's the IRC 45Q, right? So it's, it is. it's the American dream. If you put it as a tax, everyone will hate it. If you make it a tax credit, everyone will do it. <laughs> that's right. That is exactly right. That is how that's how we that's how we approach government financing. Yeah. <laughs> so very successful, as you can tell. Uh, hey, look, at, and ultimately, as long as it works, who, who frankly cares? In some senses, right? I mean, the key is that it it works, right? The America deployed huge amounts of solar and wind using tax credit mechanisms. Some people I've spoken to them actually think that's a better structure than feed-in tariffs um, from an energy system and an energy market perspective. So I'm not going to weigh in on whether it's right or wrong. It's, the question will be, does it work? It, it just helps you de-risk your project, right? Rather than penalizing on the, the negative side, you actually support innovative projects, right? So tax equity investors here on a, you know, like thinking in the ITC particularly, you know, you get ownership flips where they basically come in, invest a chunk of cash up front to then realize tax credits over a period of time, usually five, six, seven years. Sometimes there's target rates of return and stuff that come into those deals. But, you know, we we get through to the point of deployment and acceleration. And and, and I think one key, key base point, and you said it, Chris, and it's right, is that we are going to need CCS. The question is where, how, what scale and how much and what are we going to do with it? Which is one of the huge challenges for CCS stuff is the geologic storage will not be sufficient. We need to talk about utilization. And that is an entirely different podcast, I think. Unless yeah. you want to talk about synthetic fuels. Well, that, I mean, there is a call in the UK for SAF stuff at the moment. So that's a whole separate synthetic fuel piece. But I, I would even I'll just pause for a second, though. The thing that is interesting to me here as well is. Uh, if you look at the, you know, back to what Sam's about and Johnson Matthews project, the interesting thing here is that in the UK, there are, you know, broadly five, I'm probably missing one, someone will get upset, five blue hydrogen projects, right? So there's the high net project, which is probably the most famous, which is uh, near Liverpool, certainly one of the most established ones. There's a project called uh, Acorn, which is in Scotland, that's by the Fergus gas terminal, that's a huge project. Uh, there's one in Hull. There's one in Middlesbrough. Um, there then, in theory, are two other ones. There's one in the southwest of England, southwest industrial cluster, um, which is probably one of the least defined, to be honest. And then there's the Isle of Green, um, which is, you know, again, near London, um, that's being led by Arab. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that actually the government has basically said, and I think this is something we're going to see across a lot of markets, um, it doesn't want to fund all of them at once. It doesn't want to fund all of them at once for an obvious reason, which is you don't get the lessons learned if you fund everything at once. You want to fund them in phases. And I think this is the one thing about CCS is that because you have to do it at scale and you need a lot of infrastructure to make it work, it's not as easy to learn iteratively. It's not like green hydrogen where you can do lots of small and then mid-size and then large electrolysis projects in each stage iteratively learn as you as you get bigger. I mean, you have to put in the CO2 pipelines. You have to put in the storage. You have to put in huge, huge amounts of infrastructure. So you, re- you don't get dozens or hundreds or even thousands of iterative steps you basically get you know couples of dozens or maybe low hundreds right and and i think that is going to be very interesting for companies like johnson matthew who are investing in technology in this space because 
what happens if you're not the winner in the first phase? You know, so the UK government's talking about sequencing and saying, well, we don't want to do all of them at once. We might want to do two, right? Maybe three at once. And then the others three or the other four will wait. Now that makes complete sense from a taxpayer perspective, because actually you do get to learn iteratively. And it also, in some senses, is de-risking it because if it doesn't work, then you've not just sunk all your, you know, you're not just fired everything at, at, at those options, right? But from a development perspective, from a project development perspective, and from a technology commercialization perspective, it's a real headache. Because if that's the, you know, if that's your project to commercialize the technology and it doesn't work, do you sit and wait on that one for, you know, however many years until the next phase comes in, if it comes in, or do you go elsewhere? Um, you know, and, and these projects are, have enormous development costs associated with them, right? So I think that is one of the big challenges around the blue hydrogen development game. It's something that I think is, yeah, it is very difficult because really only the biggest of big companies can broadly play in that space. Um, you know, and so again, from a public perspective, there's sort of two challenges. One is that the big companies probably have a slightly better, in theory, ability to execute. They've got, in theory, better track record, better institutional resources, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, the public is generally wary of giving large tax incentives to large utilities, to large oil and gas companies, or frankly, to any large energy company, full stop. I can't imagine why they would be so wary of it. I know, you know, it's it's almost as though, you know, people aren't skeptical of, of companies making large promises and then not delivering, right? Um, but, 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 that's, but that is a genuine problem for this as well, right? Which is then, you know, so from, again, a, a technology perspective, how do you do it? Um, and, and that's kind of where, in some senses, one market we haven't really talked about, but would be good maybe to talk about. And, and we loosely touched on it in the Tech discussions before, but probably more is the small-scale blue hydrogen story, right? What actually does that really mean in practice, right? Whether it's pyrolysis or whether it's being able to produce hydrogen and then use that CO2 straight away in a process, or even, you know, people like Trevor Best and Syzygy talking about how they can create other fuels off the back of it, that then maybe is a very different story because then you have a very immediate and direct way of, of using the CO2, or at the very least, you just don't need the sheer scale of infrastructure to make that happen. Um, and I think, you know, that's an interesting piece that kind of comes out of this discussion, because if that market isn't a credible market, and if it's not a big market, and all the blue hydrogen market is sitting on a few projects in developed countries, which are either going to go or they won't, what does that mean for the for that section of the market? And, and what does that story look like? I think that's a really good place to end it. Actually, I was going to be honest with you. I thought that was really that was just a really nice exegesis there, right? And, and I think sets us up probably for some future discussions. Plus, we're also over time at this point, so yeah. And I'm uh, sure you, Sam will want to come on and disagree with me at some point, which would be good fun. Uh, you get a few. few we well, actually should get at some point probably our friend uh, Larissa Beck from um, Clean Air Task Force, who I'm sure you know, having been with the director at the. Carbon Capture Institute would also have some views on this one. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's an open invitation. Get her on. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A big thank you to Sam French, Business Development Director at Johnson Matthey, for joining us on the show today and walking us through JM's work in the hydrogen industry and the company's vision for the future of hydrogen technologies. And thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, 
please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at about hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you.